This summer, the Senate Judiciary Committee approved legislation that would try to set ethics rules for the U.S. Supreme Court and a process to enforce them. The bill, which still requires full Senate approval, is the latest in a series of recent proposals involving Supreme Court ethics reform. Hello, friends. I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. In this episode of We the People, we discuss ethics reform proposals for the Supreme Court, including how they would work and whether they would raise constitutional questions. Joining me to discuss these important questions are two of America's leading experts in constitutional law, Daniel Hemmel and Daniel Epps. Daniel Hemmel is professor of law at New York University School of Law. His wide-ranging research explores topics in taxation, intellectual property, administrative, and constitutional law. He's published more than 50 scholarly articles and essays, including a 2021 piece, Can Structural Changes Fix the Supreme Court? Daniel, it's great to welcome you to We the People. Thanks for having me on. And Daniel Epps is Treeman Professor of Law at Washington University School of Law. He writes at the intersection of constitutional law and theory, federal courts, and criminal law and procedure. He co-wrote with Ganesh Siddharaman an article in 2018 suggesting various proposals to restructure the Supreme Court, and he currently co-hosts Divided Argument with Professor William Bogg. Dan, it's wonderful to welcome you to We the People. Thanks, Jeff. Happy to be here. Dan, uh, let's start with you, if we may. What are the major proposals to reform the Supreme Court as embodied in the Sheldon White House bill that's passed the Senate Judiciary Committee? Sure. Um, And uh, just to back up on that a little bit, obviously there have been a lot of ethics controversies involving the justices recently. In terms of the current framework governing Supreme Court ethics, There are disclosure requirements under the Ethics in Government Act that the justices uh, are supposed to follow and that limit their outside income, uh, and they do file these financial disclosures. Uh, In terms of actual rules of ethics, there are not binding ethical rules other than a statutory requirement that a justice disqualify him or herself uh, in any case in which they cannot be considered impartial. The White House bill... Uh, And just full disclosure, uh, I did work briefly uh, for Senator Whitehouse uh, during the confirmation hearings uh, for now Justice Amy Coney Barrett. But his bill um, would really create more teeth in terms of ethical requirements for the court. It requires the court uh, within 180 days um, of being enacted, were it ever to be enacted, to actually issue uh, a code of conduct. And it provides uh, an appellate process for an investigative process for those complaints uh, alleging that there have been an ethical violation. Um, It it provides a process for those to be investigated and adjudicated. It takes that decision-making away uh, at least at the the first step from each individual justice because under the current system, someone will raise some concern and that justice will just say, well, you know, this concern has been raised. I don't agree with it. I'm not going to recuse in this case, or, you know, here's my decision. And there's no one standing above and outside of the court who can tell the justices what to do. 
this proposal um, at least would create uh, an investigation panel that would not be, you know, the justice him or herself that would then uh, potentially go investigate and, and make some kind of findings and bring them back to the court. So it would make it a little bit harder, I think, um, to sort of completely ignore complaints that people think have some potential merit. Tell us more about the White House bill and its proposal of an investigative panel. Who's on the panel, and does that raise in your mind any separation of powers concerns? So, uh, as I understand it, and I'm not an expert uh, on this bill, but as I uh, have read the text, um, the uh, court has to refer the complaint to a panel, and the panel is the panel is composed of uh, five judges selected randomly from among the chief judge of each circuit of the United States. So these are circuit court, the chief judges of the United States Courts of Appeals. And broadly, what are your thoughts about creating an enforcement mechanism composed of lower court judges rather than the Supreme Court itself? Well, uh, it's obviously a, a little tricky uh, in the sense that in our judicial system, the court is supposed to be at the top of the judicial hierarchy, and this is sort of subverting that a little bit, and it's putting lower court judges in kind of a weird position of having to investigate their own bosses. I think if you were looking for some way to create some kind of process to have these kinds of complaints, concerns, investigated, uh, adjudicated, and so forth, you do need to come up with something like this. And this maybe is the best option among the kind of non-ideal options. And I do think that um, the chief judges of the circuit are, you know, going to be motivated to at least look like they're not, you know, completely blowing off their responsibilities, but it does uh, nonetheless uh, put them in an awkward position. You know, there are certainly going to be separation of powers concerns raised about how does this, is this kind of interfering, first of all, is this kind of interfering too much in the in overall conduct of the judicial branch? And is it sort of trying to subvert the Supreme Court's rule within the judicial hierarchy. I think that we're dealing a little bit with, uh, uh, in terms of uncharted territory. Um, although I'd say in, in general, you know, Congress does clearly have reasonably broad power to kind of structure uh, the federal judiciary. And the question is whether this goes too far. Now, it doesn't give these judges the power to, you know, do something obviously unconstitutional, like remove Supreme Court justices. It just has them do um, this kind of fact-finding, uh, gives them the ability to uh, hold hearings and so forth. So I, I don't, at least I think, I don't think it's obviously over the line, but it's going to be a more complicated conversation to get into the details. Daniel Hemmel, as Dan Epps says, the question of whether lower court judges should review the decisions by the Supreme Court is the trickiest part of the proposal. A proposal in 2011 by... Uh, Representative Christopher Murphy, the Supreme Court Transparency and Disclosure Act, left it up to the judicial conference about whether or not to empower lower court judges or the justices themselves to review recusal decisions. That bill would have said that the judicial conference should establish a process by which recusal is reviewed by other justices or judges of a court of the United States, a group that includes retired justices and senior judges, discuss this debate about whether or not to empower lower court judges to review the decisions by the Supreme Court, whether or not allowing the justices themselves to review their decisions might work, and how you come down here. 
I think the uh, White House bill is proposes a clever mechanism uh, for imposing some degree of accountability on Supreme Court ethics decisions. Uh, I'm skeptical that it addresses any of the serious concerns uh, about the Supreme Court's power in American life, um, but uh, it at least symbolically uh, expresses the idea that the justices are not above the law. Um, the choice of chief judges, uh, I think there are, um, who is chief judge of a particular circuit at a particular time is pretty close to random. Um, these are not selected by their peers uh, for their judicial excellence. Uh, it really uh, is a product of being the right age at the right time. Um, and I think we will, once this process is in place, uh, see uh, some partisan use of it um, to kick justices off cases where we really don't think that the conflict affects their ultimate decision-making, uh, but there may be uh, on paper a conflict. Uh, so if this process were in place, I'm quite confident that someone would initiate uh, a proceeding to get Justice Brown Jackson off of the Harvard affirmative action case because she was on the Harvard Board of Overseers. Now, I think there are zero people who believe that Justice Brown Jackson's position on the Harvard Board of Overseers affected her view uh, of affirmative action. Um, but if you were to look at this from a sort of neutral principles, should she have recused herself in the parallel North Carolina case that raised the same issues as the Harvard case? Well, maybe, right? And we'll see a lot of that uh, where um, because the court is so closely divided, uh, knocking one justice off leads to predictable ideological consequences. Dan Epps, as Daniel Hemmel says, this question of strategic recusal motions is definitely a sticking point for the justices themselves and for others. Um, to what degree would empowering the court itself rather than lower court judges to review recusal requests address this question? Can you imagine a mechanism that left the decision to review recusal requests within the court itself? And, and might that address some of the separation of powers concerns? So there's two questions. One is who does the investigation uh, and makes the report? And then the question is uh, who actually has the ability to make the decision about whether the judge should be disqualified. As I understand the White House bill, the, the first part, the investigation is done by lower court judges and then the disqualification. The ultimate decision has to be made by the court uh, as a whole. Um, I, I think that, you know, does ameliorate uh, some potential separation of powers concerns. Um, I don't, you know, I'm skeptical uh, of how much that's going to give it in the way of teeth uh, because, you know, the justices... They're very collegial. It's a, I'd say it's a, it is a surprisingly uh, collegial court. Um, at least uh, it was when I clerked there. Uh, Daniel, you know, may agree or disagree. You know, given how much they disagree about, um, in the sort of you know, profound things they disagree about, they do seem to get along reasonably well. I think it's probably been a little tenser in recent years. But, you know, they they all recognize they're going to be working with each other for the rest of their lives. And I think there's a real tendency to to kind of just go along. And I think on something like this, on recusal issues, I, I am skeptical that the justices are going to be really wanting to be put in the position of telling their own colleagues that they think that they're not impartial. Um, so I, I think the question really comes down to, do we think that the having it conducted this way creates a sort of better appearance of legitimacy? And there's that's there's value to that. 
um, you know, to the extent that, you know, there's concern that people are, have lost confidence in the court, you know, they think it's being bought off, then maybe then maybe that makes it look better. Maybe that's better. Um, I, I'm skeptical that it would make a huge difference in how the cases actually come out. Daniel Hemmel, uh, discuss this question of the justices' reluctance to review the decisions of their own colleagues. Would putting the decision squarely in the hands of the justices themselves rather than lower court judges work or not, given that reluctance? And it seems like the nub of the separation of powers objections comes from empowering lower court judges to make recommendations or review the decisions of the justices. Uh, would those be alleviated by putting the decision squarely in the hands of the justices or not? I think in order to determine what the best approach is, we have to ask what the ethics reform is trying to do. Uh, if the idea is uh, to at least bring to the public the ethical conflicts that are potentially facing the justices, um, then the White House mechanism of having the issues essentially litigated at the lower court level and then decided at the Supreme Court level uh, strikes me as uh, wise uh, because then assuming that, and I think this would be uh, clearly the case under the bill, uh, the public would have access to the circuit judge's uh, report. We know about ethical concerns that in the past have been submerged, right? So we now know that in U.S. versus Microsoft, uh, there was a, a debate between Justice Stevens uh, and Chief Justice Rehnquist about whether Chief Justice Rehnquist had to recuse himself because his son did antitrust work for Microsoft as a lawyer in private practice. We're learning about this two decades after the fact uh, when Justice Stevens' uh, papers become public. So if what we want is the public to have a better understanding of conflicts facing the justices, um, then getting the circuit judge's report out there and then having the ultimate decision rest in uh, the Supreme Court strikes me as a pretty good idea. If the concern is actually about justices like being bought off, uh, and I don't really think that that is uh, the concern, or I don't think, I don't know anyone who believes that a justice has sold their vote. Uh, but if that were the perspective that you were coming from, uh, then maybe you would be concerned about the ultimate decision lying in the hands of the justices. Uh, Dan Epps, uh, Justice Alito has suggested that Congress requiring the court to adopt ethics reform would raise separation of powers concerns and indeed would be unconstitutional. Uh, can you s spell out his argument and does it turn on empowering lower court judges to review recusal decisions, which in Justice Alito's view would disrupt the idea that the Supreme Court is placed in a hierarchy above inferior courts and therefore lower federal judges should not have the power to discipline the justices? I think his view, you know, he... He obviously didn't write it in a legal opinion. He, you know, to my knowledge, he's only expressed that view in an interview uh, with the Wall Street Journal. Um, he seemed to be advancing a much broader principle than that, um, uh, rather than just saying, well, there's this specific problem uh, with this bill. He says, uh, I know this is a controversial view, but I'm willing to say it. No provision in the Constitution gives them, Congress, the authority to regulate the Supreme Court, period. It says, Congress did not create the Supreme Court, the Constitution did. Um, so as I understand what he's saying, he basically seems to think that Congress can have no role in regulating the court at all. 
um, which I would like to see fleshed out a little bit more. I don't think, um, I, I don't, I, I think that that seems not consistent with, you know, a couple hundred years of precedent when, you know, Congress passes all sorts of legislation uh, that affects uh, the justices, regulates their outside income, for example. Is that unconstitutional? And so, you know, I, I think that, you know, were this actually to come before the court, say, um, I have no doubt that the arguments would be refined. But Justice Alito seems to be coming at this from just a pretty bold view, which I haven't seen articulated and explained, that this is just categorically off limits. Uh, Daniel Hemmel, can you flesh out Justice Alito's view as you understand it? And do you agree with it or not? Uh, I'm I'm not an Alito whisperer. Uh, I, uh, I don't have access uh, to um, his thought processes. Um, Article three creates the Supreme Court. Uh, it allows Congress to regulate uh, the Supreme Court's jurisdiction in some cases, but not others. Uh, maybe there's a sort of uh, hardcore application of expressio unius est exclusio alterius to say one thing is to exclude another. Congress has the power to regulate some aspects of the way that the Supreme Court operates, but the Constitution says nothing about ethics. Um, now, this would seem to also make the Ethics in Government Act uh, unconstitutional and just kind of, it's been lingering since the 1970s uh, out there unconstitutionally, and that might be implicit uh, in Alito's view. I find Alito's view uh, extraordinarily unattractive from how we would want to uh, construct uh, a tripartite system of government. Uh, and uh, I think ethics reform will accomplish relatively little of great importance, but if all it accomplishes is to make it darn clear that Congress has the ability to regulate the court uh, in uh, reasonable ways like this, then I would consider that a win for the ethics reform effort. Like stamping out this Alito view that the Supreme Court is above the law uh, is reason enough to pursue the White House legislation. That's an interesting suggestion that Justice Alito's view would call into question the constitutionality of the Ethics of Government Act that act requires most high-level federal officials in all three branches to file annual reports where they publicly disclose aspects of their finances, including their outside income, and it applies to all federal judges, including the Supreme Court. Uh, Dan Epps, do you agree that Justice Alito's view might call that act's application to the Supreme Court into question? And can you tell our listeners whether Justice Alito's view is shared by any other justices or not? Uh, so I, I think uh, Daniel is absolutely right about that. It also, um, if his reasoning is correct, I would think that it would also suggest that that, that act is unconstitutional as applied to the executive branch and to the president, uh, at least, because the Constitution also creates the presidency uh, and you know Congress doesn't create the presidency. And so by the same token, if the fact that the Constitution creates an office means that Congress has no ability to regulate that at all, I assume the same reasoning would apply. Um, is it shared? I, I don't know. I know that uh, Justice Kagan uh, made some public remarks um, somewhat after, a little bit after uh, Justice Alito made those comments that that indicated, uh, suggested she did not um, agree with his view. Um, I have I have no idea how uh, widely it is shared. I do think I'd say two things. One is that you know the justices traditionally are are quite protective of their own uh, prerogatives and 
get, you know, really get their feathers ruffled when they see other branches as really encroaching on what they believe to be uh, their turf. And so, you know, that, that it is a situation where I wouldn't expect the justices just to roll over immediately, um, although the kind of political dynamics of that would matter. Uh, I think it also would matter a lot what the kind of partisan dynamics um, of these kind of reforms look like. Right now, you know, in part because of how people politically feel about the court, this is a very party line issue, right? It's Democrats who are saying the court is corrupt and illegitimate and all these other things and are pushing, in addition to other kinds of reforms, pushing for ethics reforms. And it's Republicans who are saying the court's great, doesn't need to be meddled with. This is just, you know, Democrats looking for a pretext. And so to the extent that it were ever to happen, if it were to happen as a sort of pure party line thing, I think that significantly raises the likelihood that you might see the court itself ideologically breaking down on whether they believe this is something that was permissible or not. I'm not saying that's the entirety of their decision making, but I do think that the political valence of these kinds of things matters um, when push comes to shove. Daniel, Hemel, Professor Lawrence Tribe and Judge Michael Ludig have suggested that Congress has the ability to impose ethics reform directly on the court, for example, by making the code of conduct for United States judges binding on the Supreme Court to the same extent as it applies to circuit and district court judges, but that it does not have the power to require the court to adopt its own ethics rules, because that would violate separation of powers. What do you think of that suggestion, and is that widely shared or not? Certainly when Professor Tribe and Judge Ludig, uh, two brilliant constitutional minds from different ideological perspectives, uh, come together uh, and uh, say something as uh, thought through and nuanced as that, uh, I am loath uh, to, uh, to criticize. Um, these are unresolved issues. Uh, and when we're debating what the Constitution requires, uh, there's the question, what does the best view of the Constitution require? And then there's the separate question of what would the nine justices on the Supreme Court uh, say that the Constitution requires? Uh, if we're engaged in the second exercise and predicting how the law would come out, uh, the tribe ludic view, uh, Congress can write the rules, but it can't just pass the buck to the Supreme Court uh, to write the rules, actually strikes me as something that I can imagine the nine justices getting behind. Um, and uh, if they could strike down the White House bill and say, it's not that we can't be bound by ethics rules, it's just that you've got to do the work. Exactly. Dan Epps, um, if Congress did adopt that suggestion and, and decide to do the work, let's try to identify the bill that has the most chance of being accepted by the justices and adopted by the court We've talked about the question of whether justices or lower court judges should review recusal decisions. Is, is it right that the, the most acceptable bill would put that ultimate decision in the hands of the justices and would do little more than that the Murphy bill in 2011 originally did, which is formally apply the code of conduct to justices in a way that they voluntarily suggested they're willing to embrace on their own, help sketch out what the what the moderate sort of compromise bill would look like. So I, I think uh, probably that latter suggestion of just saying that these 
these rules that the justices basically say, yeah, they, you know, we more or less try to follow those, um, that those actually are binding. I mean, I do think that, you know, there might be some appropriate tweaks in terms of what rules should look like for the justices versus lower court judges for a couple of reasons. I mean, one is that the consequences of a recusal in the Supreme Court are much more significant. Justice Scalia uh, wrote an opinion uh, in response to uh, calls for him to recuse himself uh, from a case involving Vice President Cheney, with whom he had uh, engaged in um, a social duck hunting trip. Um, and one of the things he notes, I think, is is important and useful there, which is that you know because there is no one else who can just step in to fill the shoes of a justice who's recused, um, a recusal vote, you know, decision is effectively just granting uh, a vote to uh, the party uh, that won below, right? It's it has the same equivalent of doing that, and so maybe you know we need to be more sensitive to that and be slightly less willing to err on the side of recusal. Um, they also are. They're kind of high officials in a way that that individual judges aren't. They get visited by foreign dignitaries. Um, people bring them gifts. They are called upon to travel internationally, uh, maybe in ways that lower court judges are. And so, you know, I think the rules could uh, acknowledge some of those nuances. I don't, I don't even know exactly what they would look like, but I think that would probably be um, the least controversial. Uh, I think that it does definitely get a lot more complicated when you're talking about actual recusal decisions. I think that's much likely to be uh, controversial. And I, I do think something about a lot of these recent um, you know, ethical uh, brouhaha's is it can be very hard to really even, even the people that are concerned about it, to explain exactly like what the problem is in terms of particular cases. Sometimes we can say, okay, well, this this donor, this person who provided the gift has this connection to this party and that party, you know, got this favorable decision or, or, or whatever. Um, but a lot of times the, the sort of air of corruption is a little bit more uh, diffuse and it's hard to translate into any particular argument that a justice should require from uh, any particular uh, case at all. Uh, and I think that is, you know, one of the things um, that is maybe more uh, controversial uh, about uh, the White House bill is that it expands uh, the category somewhat of the kinds of cases where recusal um, is required. Um, and I think that would be extremely controversial. Daniel Hemel, Dan Epps suggests that perhaps a moderate reform proposal would need to be more sensitive and willing to err on the side of recusal and also acknowledge nuances about the kinds of folks that justices can meet with, but that the White House bill does the opposite and ramps up the categories for recusal. Do, do, do you agree that it might make more sense to be more forgiving in the case of recusal when it comes to the Supreme Court, and that could be a way of reaching a moderate compromise? If the goal is to pass legislation, uh, yes, then uh, the White House bill would need to be moderated in order to be passed. Uh, but I'm not sure if Senator Whitehouse's goal here is to get through uh, the Senate a bill that can muster, you know, 60 votes to break a filibuster. He's also trying to make a statement uh, about the legitimacy of the court. Uh, and he uh, opposes decisions that the Supreme Court has made. Uh, and um, ethics is a 
useful cudgel for attacking the court uh, when what you're really attacking is Dobbs and Bruin uh, and other controversial decisions uh, of the court. Um, I think both sides here have politicized the ethics issues. Uh, Liberals are using ethics reform to um, pursue criticisms of the court that are really founded in substantive objections to the court's decisions. And conservatives and Republicans are stonewalling sensible ethics changes because they view those as emanating from a substantive disagreement. Um, So, and both sides are sort of transparently playing politics with ethics and transparency. Um, So this makes me quite skeptical that as long as there's divided control over Congress, or at least uh, not a filibuster-proof majority in the Senate, um, that we'll see uh, anything get through. If I were advising the Supreme Court, I would say uh, I would pursue voluntary reform right now because it does look bad uh, that the Supreme Court is not bound uh, by a code of ethics. That's something that ordinary Americans understand uh, as icky. Um, and there's a reason why liberals are using the ethics issue to attack the court, uh, because it's a way of attacking the court on what seem like nonpartisan, non-ideological grounds, when really your objections to the court are partisan and ideological. And to be clear, those are partisan and ideological objections to the court that I share. Uh, but I think we should just call a spade a spade and talk about what's going on. Uh, Dan Epps, uh, sketch out what the moderate bill that could conceivably get bipartisan support would look like. Just in a little more detail, you you said that uh, it could have slightly more nuanced or relaxed standards for recusal. And then would the enforcement mechanism be squarely in the hands of the court itself? And would there be any other elements to the bill uh, that's most likely to get bipartisan support? So I, I will say at the outset that I think that given the way this issue has evolved, I think it's basically impossible to imagine there will be bipartisan consensus for any kind of ethics reform because anything that happens, I think, would now be perceived as a victory, even a small one for Democrats, and an acknowledgement that some of the recent controversies that that maybe Democrats were right about them. Um, and I think that I, I find it very hard to believe there are, you know, 10 or so senators uh, in the Republican caucus who would be willing to make that concession and to, you know, give Democrats um, what they see as uh, a victory. But, I mean, I, I think that the the likelihood, you know, the less it requires and the more it just sort of contains some vague, uh, gauzy principles, um, I guess the more likely it is uh, to succeed. I mean, it certainly would uh, have to remove some of the more controversial parts of the White House bill. So uh, the White House bill um, has uh, this this section about anti-corruption provisions um, that requires recusal where the justice or judge knows that a party to the proceeding or an affiliate of a party to the proceeding made any lobbying contact uh, as defined in Section 3 of the Lobbying Disclosure Act or spent substantial funds in support of the nomination, confirmation, or appointment. And I think that what he's trying to get at is, well, if there's a party that's contributed to the federal society or that the federal society is involved or one of Leonard Leo's kind of dark money groups has been involved in kind of paying for ads uh, supporting the confirmation the justice uh, should have to be 
recused. And that, that just goes down a very um, complicated rabbit hole that, you know, Republicans are absolutely not going to be willing to go down. Daniel Hemmel, um, you mentioned voluntary reform, and, and the court is grappling with this question. Sketch out the elements of a voluntary reform that the court itself might adopt that's most likely to get wide support, and what sort of recusal uh, standards would that look like? Would it involve embracing the code of conduct wholesale or a diluted version of it? And what would the enforcement mechanism be? The court has already moved in some direction toward voluntary reform uh, by expanding the scope of uh, personal hospitality disclosures uh, that uh, or the ju- judicial conference uh, has expanded the scope of personal uh, personal hospitality disclosures uh, that justices uh, are forced to make. Uh, so we've seen from uh, Justice Thomas recently uh, more extensive uh, disclosures in the summer of 2023 uh, than uh, than we saw beforehand. We can imagine a situation where uh, there's a, a more formal process for justices issuing public. Uh, opinions or public statements uh, about disclosure, uh, like we've seen some justices do voluntarily uh, in the past. Scalia, Scalia's letter uh, on uh, the Cheney conflict uh, would be uh, one illustration. Um, and the uh, the Supreme Court says that it is bound by uh, the lower court code of, or it considers itself bound by the lower court code of judicial conduct. But it said this basically in like attachments to letters to the Senate Judiciary Committee. Uh, so we could imagine a more formal statement uh, from the court uh, to that effect. Uh, beyond that, uh, I think it's unlikely that the justices would empower lower court judges uh, to uh, to cast a judgment on whether a particular justice would be recused uh, in a particular case. Um, I would advise them to, but I don't think that they would, adopt a White House-type mechanism for at least getting uh, a non-binding report out, written by, maybe it's a senior associate justice or a senior chief justice, uh, maybe it's uh, circuit court judges, uh, so that some of the back and forth between justices on recusal uh, that we see in the papers, uh, you know, years later, uh, actually comes to the fore uh, today. Um, But I don't think it will have teeth if it's coming from the justices themselves. Dan Epps, what do you think of voluntary reform proposal that could plausibly get consensus among the justices might look like? Uh, Daniel Hemel has suggested, first, uh, a more formal process for issuing public statements about disclosure, and second, a more formal statement by the court that it's bound by the lower court code of conduct. Uh, do you agree with those suggestions? And are there any others you think the justices might plausibly converge around? So um, I think we might have seen them converge as much as they're going to converge, because obviously this we've been told um, you know, that some of these discussions have uh, already taken place. Um, I think... Uh, I think it was Justice Kagan, maybe a year or so ago, sort of mentioned that they'd been discussing the issue. I think Chief Justice Roberts has said they've been discussing the issue. And then, you know, what we got was this, you know, attachment to a letter to uh, Senator Durbin, chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, sort of saying, look, you know, I'm not going to come testify, but here's some stuff we're thinking about. Um, But it doesn't go, you know, 
a ton uh, beyond sort of saying, yeah, we, you know, we try to follow those rules. We, you know, we, we, you know, we look to them uh, and so forth. They seem to have um, gotten a little bit, become a little bit more forthcoming uh, in the wake of that uh, about uh, explaining their um, recusal decisions uh, and so forth. Um, but I don't know if there's more room to bargain here because, again, because this issue now has this partisan valence, um, I, you know, I, I think that it's probably going to divide the court on ideological grounds, and it's going to be seen by some of them, you know, and certainly Justice Alito um, is in kind of fight mode uh, as a concession to the critics, and and some of them like Justice Alito, and I presume Justice Thomas, think that this criticism is totally unfounded and unfair. And so I don't know whether we're likely to see more than that. Daniel Hemmel, um, remind me once more what the current recusal procedures within the court are. We, we, we've talked about some historic discussions among the justices, but, but what happens when a recusal request is submitted? Does the justice just review it him or herself, or does it go to the full court and is there any appetite among the current justices about ramping up the internal recusal review procedures or not? Dan will correct me if I'm wrong, but right now it lies in the discretion of each justice. Uh, and each, really each chambers has a different uh, procedure for figuring out in the thousands of cert petitions uh, each year uh, whether uh, justice is recused. And for some justices, that procedure is going to be pretty simple because there are relatively few uh, potential conflicts. For Justice Kagan, in her earlier years on the court, uh, when um, she previously served as Solicitor General, uh, it involved a lot of research to make sure that she hadn't signed off on some appeal from a district court decision in some prior iteration of this case. Um, but right now, we essentially have nine recusal procedures. And, and Dan Epps... Is there any appetite within the court for ramping up those internal review procedures? And what would it look like? Would a, would a contested decision be reviewed by the entire court? Or how, how could the court ramp it up if it wanted to? Well, I guess there's two uh, things. I mean, one is just in terms of the sort of ordinary recusals. There have been a number of cases in recent years where it's turned out after the fact that a justice you know, voted on a cert petition uh, in a company that the justice actually owns stock in. Uh, things like that have happened a bunch of times. Um, I don't think people really think that it was corruption. I think that, you know, there are 7,000, 8,000 cert petitions filed every year. And uh, some of the things get missed because the procedures are imperfect. I think it might make a ton of sense to have a slightly better, um, more mechanical process with, within uh, within the court um, to the extent that, as Daniel noted, um, a lot of it is just kind of each individual chamber is kind of trying to figure this stuff out on its own, maybe having a better uh, set of procedures uh, in place to kind of really identify those conflicts. I don't see there being appetite for, you know, a, a change, a, a meaningful change in the substance of the standard. Um, and I think it would be, you know, it, it's hard to kind of articulate exactly what that change uh, would look like, even if people are concerned about justices taking fancy gifts. Again, it can be hard to translate those kind of general ethical concerns into uh, specific recusal decisions. And what do you think about the possibility of having the whole court review recusal decisions? Um, 
I think that is unlikely to make a difference. I could imagine them saying, I mean, because there's the fact that they say the whole court is reviewing, it doesn't really mean anything. If the posture is automatically defer to their colleagues, maybe they could all agree that they would just say going forward that the whole court was reviewing them, but nonetheless, the court would always act as a rubber stamp. Um, But in any event, I just, I don't think that they're likely to want to put themselves in a position of second guessing their colleagues on matters like this. Um, It just doesn't seem like the right place for them to be burning their capital with their own colleagues. Daniel Hemmel, do you agree that there really isn't much appetite within the court for having the justices second guess their colleagues? And in that sense, is the only plausible area for internal voluntary review to formally embrace the code of conduct and ensure that recusal decisions are more transparent? Yeah, and transparency could be a meaningful reform. And in terms of uh, appetite for this, Chief Justice Roberts and I think several other members care deeply about uh, the court's legitimacy, public confidence in the court, the court's popularity. Um, I can imagine uh, a world in which uh, we do see more robust uh, transparency measures uh, because the court wants to raise itself uh, in the public's esteem. Um, but I don't think uh, we can envision, nor do, nor do I think we would really want, uh, Supreme Court recusal being a sort of game of survivor uh, where eight justices could vote one justice off the island uh, because of some stock or mutual fund ownership or some affiliation with the university. Dan Epps, would the courts formally binding itself to the code of conduct and being more transparent help? Is that something that is worth uh, the reform-minded justices pushing for or not? Um, I guess it depends on what you mean by help. I mean, I think that um, I share a premise that Daniel identified uh, earlier in the discussion, which is that a, a huge amount of what's really going on here is a big swath of our political system in our country is really unhappy with the substantive decisions that the court is making. And, you know, that may be really what's explaining all of this um, discussion about ethics. And that's it's all not really about ethics. Um, I do think that, you know, taking some steps, um, you know, would be good in the sense that it would tell people the justices are listening and, you know, maybe take a little bit of the heat off of their backs. Um, but I also, uh, very much agree with what, uh, Daniel said that, that, you know, having a few of these episodes where we have to remind the justices that the rules apply to them, they're not above the law, uh, and that the you know it does actually matter what the American public thinks about them. I think that's all to the good. Daniel, as we wrap up, you've expressed skepticism that the court's legitimacy turns on ethics reforms. Tell us about that skepticism and whether you think that there's anything the court should do to address the legitimacy concerns or not. Uh, so public confidence in the Supreme Court is definitely down, but public confidence in all American institutions is down. Um, the Supreme Court is right now, if you look at the Gallup confidence uh, ratings, uh, it does better uh, than any of the other branches. Um, so I don't think the court is facing a legitimacy crisis. I don't think there's really serious talk among the leaders of either party. Well, we'll see. Trump may be an exception to this. Uh, But President Biden is not seriously talking about flagrantly defying the court. Uh, That would be quite quite an unpopular thing uh, for him to do. Uh, 
uh, even within the Democrats, um, if you were to try. Um, I think the uh, the role of ethics reform here, it's uh, largely to bolster the appearance that the court is neutral, that these are umpires who aren't swayed by um, uh, who, who or I guess aren't swayed by anything. Uh, it's an appear- appearance of neutrality that uh, probably neither Dan or I really believes that there is any sort of possibility of the justices being uh, umpires, uh, that the search for neutral principles in law was really a search in vain. Um, so these ethics reforms uh, are meant to build up what is ultimately like a, a fiction uh, that the justices are just uh, these uh, uh, persons in robes without uh, ideological and partisan uh, views. Um, so at the end of the day, what's ethics reform doing? You know, it looks bad that the Supreme Court isn't bound by a code of ethics. And maybe that confidence rating goes up a few points uh, once we have ethics reform. Um, but uh, we'll still have pro-choicers who are really, really, really upset uh, by the outcome in Dobbs. And we'll still have uh, same-sex marriage opponents who are really, really uh, upset about the outcome in Obergefell. And that's going to drive attitudes toward the court rather than uh, whether people recuse themselves in cases in which they have $2,000 of stock in a company. Uh, well, it's time for closing thoughts in this in this thoughtful debate, which really has helped us to understand the contours of the choices the court faces when it comes to ethics reform. Uh, Dan Epps, um, how do you think that the court itself might most constructively address questions involving ethics and the Supreme Court? So uh, I do think that doing something to indicate that they're listening and, and hearing the criticism is good. And I do think that they have done some of that already uh, in terms of the attachment to the letter to Senator Durbin, in terms of the um, updates to financial disclosures that Justice Thomas uh, has made, uh, indicating, trying to explain um, why he disclosed differently and how he's going to disclose differently uh, in the future. Um, so I think, you know, those kinds of things would be good. I think maybe more rather than doing it responsively, uh, maybe just coming out in the next year with a kind of statement on the website that says, you know, look, we thought about this. Here's what we see as the problem. Here's what we're going to do differently. Here's why we're not going to do other things differently and just take it or leave it. Um, I, I think that would put the court, I think it would look better for the court to not be in this constant defensive posture responding to other things, but just to be out there and saying, look, here's what we're going to do. And Daniel Hemmel, last word in this great discussion to you. How do you think the court might most constructively address questions involving ethics and the Supreme Court? I agree with Dan that the Supreme Court coming out and making an affirmative statement uh, explaining what it's going to do and what it's not going to do uh, would be wise. We've seen, we have seen the court budge on other issues of transparency in the last few years. Uh, so like live streaming uh, audio uh, of Supreme Court oral arguments, that was a big change. And I think uh, most court watchers believe that it was a change for the better, even though 20 years ago, it seemed almost unimaginable. Um, so uh, internally driven uh, Supreme Court reform uh, can raise the court's esteem in the eyes of lawyers and lay people, uh, even if it doesn't fundamentally change the court's position in American life. 
Thank you so much, Dan Epps and Daniel Hamill, for a thoughtful, nonpartisan, and, and really illuminating discussion about ethics in the Supreme Court. Dan, Daniel, thank you so much for joining. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks. Thanks Today's episode was produced by Lana Ulrich, Bill Pollack, and Samson Mastashari. It was engineered by Bill Pollack. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich, Samson Mastashari, Cooper Smith, and Yara Durese. Please recommend the show to friends, colleagues, or anyone anywhere who's eager for a weekly dose of constitutional illumination and debate. Sign up for the newsletter at constitutioncenter.org forward slash connect. And always remember, whether you wake or sleep, that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity, the passion, the engagement, the dedication to civil constitutional dialogue of people from around the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission. You can support that mission by becoming a member at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership or give a donation of any amount to support our work, including the podcast, at constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen. 